떠냐 에스더냐 현대전회 이수사하더냐 언나와 대화도기 넌환다과는다 현논 션스과 드리어닷 넌환디현라샤다 이수사하더냐 아하더냐 Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode of this podcast, I look at around 100 pages of the works of great American writers using the Library of America as my source material. Currently, we're in the middle of a very long series on James Fenimore Cooper's The Leatherstocking Tales, and this will be the third episode on the second of these novels, The Last of the Mohicans. Um, now, if you've been following us, you know there's a big difference between the order in which these, these stories were published and the order in which they unfold chronologically for our characters. Last of the Mohicans is the only one of these novels that is second in both of these uh, ways to count through the series. Uh, it's the second one published, and it's the second one in the life of our hero, Natty Bumpo, Leatherstocking, Hawkeye, the Deer Slayer, whatever name you want to uh, him to go by. In The Last of the Mohicans, he tended to go by the name Hawkeye or usually just uh, called by the narrator the Scout. All right, so I urge you to go back and, and listen to what I had to say on the first half of this novel. This will be our third part on Last of the Mohicans covering uh, the, th the third quarter of this book, roughly chapters, well exactly chapters 18 to 25, but roughly the third quarter of of this novel. So in the first part of The Last of the Mohicans, or the first half of The Last of the Mohicans, the, a small party consisting of Major Hayward, Duncan Hayward, uh, the children, the two daughters of, of the commander of a nearby fort, Monroe, Cora, and Alice Monroe, their half-sisters. They're joined by a psalm writer named David Gamut, and they're traveling with a a uh, Huron named Makwa, although he's at the time identified as a Mohawk, an ally of the British. As they're traveling to this fort, they get lost, and then they run into Hawkeye, Chingachgook, and Chingachgook's son, Uncas. And they are immediately worried that Makwa will betray them because they identify him as a Huron. Worried about an ambush, uh, they scare off Makwa, and then take, and then the guides take this part of the small party to Glen's Falls where they hide out. However, the Huron do attack, and although Chingachgook and Uncas and Hawkeye are able to escape through the river, the rest of the whites are captured by Huron warriors. We learn that Makwa hates Monroe because he humiliated him one time after he got drunk. He has also been kicked out of his tribe and lost his wife for becoming an alcoholic. So he has a couple goals here. One goal is to be uh, redeemed by the tribe. He wants to get a wife back and he wants to humiliate and punish uh, Monroe in some way. So Hawkeye and the Mohicans arrive and then slaughter the captors, except Magua, who escapes moments before he was about to be brained. They are now free to guide the party through the war-torn countryside around Lake George, finally arriving at Fort William Henry. At the fort, Hawkeye is sent out to get help, but is captured. Hayward discusses with Monroe his plans to marry Alice. He's then uh, gives a, he then Monroe then I mean gives a history of Cora, his 
daughter whose mother was a biracial woman from the West Indies. So she has um, basically um, some African roots in her background. He questions Hayward about his racial prejudices, him coming from the South. Uh, Hayward denies this. And at this time, Montcalm, the French commander, comes to negotiate a surrender of the fort. This is agreed to and the English leave the fort, but they're attacked by a group of Huron led by Makwa and many are slaughtered. This is a real historical event, by the way, although there's uh, disagreements about how extensive it was and who's to blame for it. But Cooper makes it a fictionali fictionalizes it by making it an attack that's really led by or conspired by the Hurons under Makwa. Montcalm, despite his efforts, is unable to stop the slaughter. And in the melee, David and uh, Monroe's daughters are captured by Makwa and the Huron. So that brings that's that's the events of the first half of the last of the Mohicans. Okay, so we'll pick up uh, right at the halfway point in the in the novel with chapter eighteen. Now, the massacre of the of the people uh, who surrendered at Fort William Henry is the centerpiece of the novel in a lot of ways. It's really the centerpiece of Makwa's villainy. He does a lot of other odious things throughout the novel, capturing people, attempting to rape Cora, forcing her to be his wife, and and other kind of deceptions and things, but it's really this this deception that has kind of the highest body count, and it really makes him one of the great villains of American literature, I think. Um, but you know, this is, but there's still like this other main plotline that needs to be resolved now, and that's going to dominate the second half of the novel, and that's going to be the rescue of Monroe's children. How are Hawkeye, Chingachgook, and Uncas, and Hayward and others going to liberate these two women? How it's going to be done? How are they going to be freed? And then we're going to get, a, in the second half of the novel, a lot more on this theme of the last of the Mohicans as we start to shift from the whites to much more Indians. The first part of the novel was, was in many ways about the politics among the whites, the conflict between the, the British and the French, and the, the surrender of this fort. And with that out of the way, Cooper is allowed to kind of go deeper and deeper into Indian politics. So we learn a lot more about the Delaware. We learn a lot more about the Huron and their feelings and their attitudes and the situation that they see themselves in with an encroaching white civilization. And that's all going to be kind of delivered through this plot of rescuing Mineral's children. Um, this is going to dominate the remainder of the novel. So Hawkeye, the Mohicans, and Hayward, along with Monroe, are looking for signs of the women, and, and they search the remains of this battle that took place. Really, not so much a battle, but a massacre. And we get a relatively long description of the battle sites. Quote, Chingachgook approached the mutilated form, and turning it over, he found the disgusting marks of one of those six allied tribes, or nations, as they were called, who, while they fought on the English ranks, were so deadly hostile to his own people. Spurning the loathsome object with his foot, he turned from it with the same indifference he would have quitted a brute carcass. The scout comprehended the action and very deliberately pursued his own way, continuing, however, his denunciations to get the French commander in the same resentful strain. Now, what we have at this moment is something that, again, that, that, that Cooper is going to bring up a lot in the second half of the novel, is the shifting loyalties of, of the Indians. It's not so much that they're, they're, they're kind of what, Deerslayer would have called the Sar Conventions, although that may be part of it. But it's more that they get abandoned and misused and mistreated and the, their war goals aren't really achieved. So they, they end up having a very fluid geopolitical awareness. And here we have examples of members of the Iroquois Confederacy, which are allied with England, but actually participated in the massacre. Um, 
So there's a discussion here about the nature of war and just its, its brutality. And eventually they gather enough evidence around this battle site to prove that the women were taken away. And there's a conflict presented here between the nature of the warriors to fight and kill and then the overall immorality of war. And it's something that sort of bothers Hawkeye and I think it bothers Cooper in a way too. Cooper talks a lot or through Hawkeye and, and then through Natty Bumpo talks a lot about the gifts one has. And these are sometimes natural gifts. These are one's aptitudes and skills and things like that. And, you know, warriors their nature is to fight and kill and if they're good at that they'll be very effective at it but then there's this overall kind of the immorality of war that we get a feeling that cooper is very uncomfortable with well that that sort of does it for chapter 18 which is mostly just the aftermath of the battle and then setting these our heroes back on the trail of of these women cooper loves these stories of chase and pursuit and he there's several of them in the Deerslayer, there are several of them in this novel already, so I get a feeling it's going to be in all these larger stocking tales to some degree. Um, I haven't read them before, um, but I've already noticed this, this kind of common thing that's come up a lot. So chapter 19. This chapter is mostly set in one place as our heroes share a meal around a fire. But they also begin to discuss the complexities of these American wars and the difficult alliances that exist with the Indians really how difficult it is for them to have a secure alliance and how difficult it is for the Indians to gain something from the war. And then just how divisions within certain tribes will lead to some people supporting one side and another. And so you can't really ever have a clear idea among the Indians at least who's on whose side. There's a kind of a liquidity to the politics of these Indian polities in upstate New York. And specifically, this is talked about in the context of the Oneida, who are, are one of these groups that, that I, th I, th I think Uncas at one point actually kills an Oneida saying, you know, he's basically an enemy, but he should be allied with the British. So this confusion about who's allied to who comes through in this chapter. Now, throughout all this conversation, we, have, we see Monroe, who's just kind of losing his mind in grief. And Monroe kind of fades from importance at this point in the story. We don't, he doesn't do that much. He's, he's basically mad with grief. Um, so he's kind of useless to us for, for most of the novel. His main function of this, in this novel is to give it sound of this historical um, authority because this is set, you know, where a real battle was and where a real massacre took place. And then it's also, he's going to, del he delivered this wonderful history of Korah and his time in the West Indies. And that's a thematically important point, but he's not really that useful for kind of the action that dominates the second half of the novel. So as I already suggested, Uncas arrives with the scalp of an enemy who's an Oneida, and they, everyone points out that he should be allied with the British. He shouldn't be an enemy of ours. And they get an alliance, or the description that alliances are hardly written in stone, especially in these, these times. There's also apparently very deep political divisions among the Iroquois, uh, which are talked about here. And this is actually Cooper giving it to us in, in, as the narrator. It's not coming to us through the characters. Quote, the great tie of language and, of course, the common origin was severed in many places. And it was one of these consequences that the Delaware and the Mingo, as the people of the Six Nation are called. And I'll just stop there for a minute. So the Mingo is often used to refer to the Huron. But here we see that the term, it was a term used for all the, the Iroquois people 
Okay, going on. Uh, the Mingo were found fighting in the same ranks while the later sought the scalp of the Huron, though believed to be the root of his own stock. The Delawares were even divided among themselves. For love of the soil, which had belonged to his ancestors, kept the Sagamore of the Mohicans in a small band of followers who were serving at Edward under the banner of the English king. By far the largest portion of his nation were known to be in the field as allies of Montcalm. The reader probably knows if enough has not already been gleaned from this narrative that the Delaware or Lenape claim to be the progenitors of the numerous people who were at once masters of most of the eastern and northern states of America, and whom the community of the Mohicans was an ancient and highly honored member. If it can, it's confusing for you, I, I think, you know, you, I guess we're forgiven for that because these are very complex politics and very few people have the background to understand this all. Um, even trained historians who aren't specialists in Native American experiences and politics might get confused about all that's going on here. And that's, but what's really important about this is that Cooper is presenting this to an audience that often didn't appreciate the deep differences between Indian groups and kind of labeled them and described them in whole cloth. And so he's being very careful to show these distinctions among the various people in this frontier. So then we come to chapter 20. Um, in this chapter, the aftermath of the massacre gives way to the plan to free the women. But they still really don't know where they can be found. They have no clear idea of where they can find the women. They decide to take a canoe across a nearby lake in hopes of covering their tracks. This is something that you saw happen in the Deerslayer too. It's the, it's the use of waterways to basically cover your tracks. And there's even a suggestion, I think it's here, maybe it's in Pathfinder, because I've started reading into the Pathfinder, where the suggestion is a good tracker can even track people as they cross bodies of water. But for most purposes, getting to a waterway and then using it is a way to basically hide, hide your tracks. But while they're on the canoe, they're spotted by some Huron. They're, there's a bit of a fighting, a bit of fight, a fight breaks out. And when they start shooting at each other, the two groups shoot at each other and Hawkeye eventually kills one of the Huron with his rifle and they're able to finally affect their escape. So not much happens in chapter 20 except a little bit of an action scene for us. Um, chapter 21. The characters follow the trail as best they can. Uh, that, but they can't, you know they had to cross water, and it's kind of hard to follow. So they eventually lose this trail as they enter into Huron territory. Hawkeye begins to converse with Hayward about the law of the woods, and it's it's a rather interesting conversation. So you should stop and take a look at it. This this theme comes at to at us a couple ways. For instance, we have. Uh, Hayward kind of learning more about life on the frontier through Hawkeye. And then we especially have David Gamet, who's completely of the city and completely civilized and really is the least skilled at the beginning of the novel. And they're kind of having to learn this law of the woods, law of the frontier. And this is what Hawkeye says. That our march is come to a quick end and that we are in an enemy's country. Had the knave been pressed and the gentle ones wanted horses to keep up with the party, he might have taken their scalps. But without an enemy at its heel, and with such a rugged beast as these, he would not hurt a hair on their heads. I know your thoughts, and shame be it to, to our color, that you have reason for them. But he who thinks that even a mingo would ill-treat a woman, unless it is to tomahawk her, knows nothing of Indian nature or the law of the woods. No, no, I have heard that the French Indians have come into these hills to hunt down moose, but we are getting within scent of their camp. Why should they not? The morning and evening guns of Thai may be heard every day among these mountains, for the Frenchers are running a new line between the provinces of the king and Canada's. It's true that the horses are here, but the Hurons are gone. Let us hunt for the path by which they are departed. 
the whole point of this passage is just that there's certain rules about Indian behavior that they're just not straight up barbarians as many of the whites think. And he and Hawkeye even makes that point that people like us, white people, tend to think of Indians this way, but that's wrong. You shouldn't think of them that way. And so part of the law of the woods is just that there's a way of doing things among these communities that most white people didn't appreciate and didn't know. And if you want to be successful and survive and, and take advantage of, you know, the these politics, you got to understand them. You can't be that ignorant. Now, most of the fun in, the, in these chapters deals with the nature of tracking. Um, we got even moments where the gender of the people that they're tracking is an issue in the details. And for the experienced trackers, such as our heroes, Chingachgook, Uncas, and especially Hawkeye, you know, they, they're even able to identify that this was a woman's foot, not a man's foot. And it's, it's really kind of nice uh, a look into it. And I, I don't know how much of this is fictionalized and you know, maybe Hawkeye is just made to be a, almost a superhero in his tracking skills for the purpose of the plot. But um, it is fun to watch them try to track these these Huron into the woods. Hawkeye comes across a beaver dam and a fort and they see an Indian on the ground. He approaches him and is about to kill him when it's revealed to be David dressed up as an Indian. Now, this is the first of a theme, uh, the first moment where a theme is identified that's going to be huge later on in the novel. Now, maybe there were hints of it earlier in the story. Now, this is the concept of a costume and disguises and identity and how clothing plays such an important role in this novel, even from the early on when Mago was identified as a Huron by our heroes from the way he dressed, despite present, despite claiming to be a Mohawk. You have Korra, who's basically passing as white, but you know, is is essentially well, by twentieth century racist, racist, racist thinking would have been identified as black. Well, that's a complex question about you know, and it was different, you know, from state to state. Some states had one drop rules, but anyways, none of that's relevant for the time this novel is set. But she's certainly, for all intents and purposes, a white woman who has this heritage, this black heritage from the West Indies. Um, but it's going to become a much bigger theme in the second half of the novel, especially the last part, where more and more characters are wearing costumes and wearing dresses. And this is something that's been completely written out of the of the movie version of it. And I don't know if it would, could have been filmable, if it would have been seen too ridiculous for modern audiences. But it's a lot of fun in the second half of, of this novel is the dresses and the costumes people wear. In this case, we have uh, David Gamut, who's basically been abandoned by the Indians. He's dressed as an Indian. Um Now, this focus on clothing even exists as a theme in the Deerslayer. So it's not, it's not something Cooper forgets about later in his career when he's writing that in 1941. Clothing, as I talk about in my review of that book, was also very important. Now, David jokes here about teaching the beavers to sing. And it's, it's a lot, like a little comic relief, which is part of the role of David Gamick's character. I think he has a larger important role about showing this assimilation into the wild and, and coming to terms with being in the wild. But at times, he kind of serves as a bit of comic relief, and this is one of the moments. So chapter 22. Well, David's arrival into the party, this return to the party, serves an important function of, of introducing the possibility of, of locating the women. So that's his main role here in the plot. Now, there's a conversation about nature as music, which is kind of nice. And, it, you know, David Gamet's character is that of a musician. And the previous chapter ends with this idea of teaching the beavers to sing. It's kind of presented as a joke. But we get this nice uh, line where 
the kind of the musical nature, the music, the musicality of nature is is introduced. Actually, it's Hawkeye who says it. He says, see, this is music, which has its natural virtues. It brings two rifles to my elbow to say nothing of the knives and the tomahawks. But we see that you are safe. Now tell us what has become of the maidens. So he gets right to business, but first he does address this issue of, of t- you know, quote, about kind of the mu- man-made music and its significance and then kind of the music of nature and how, for him, it's signs. It's, and it's an alert, right? It brings the rifle forward. If you hear a certain noise, you bring up the rifle. It, it lets you know where your next meal is and it lets you know where enemies might be. And so a very different philosophy of, of music is presented here. And we're going to see the reason David is basically free to go is because he's taken as insane by the Huron because he sings. So that's seen as something that's totally crazy uh, in Indian culture. So they have a very different attitude towards music in general. So David tells the story as best as he can, and he tries to give details. He's not particularly good at it because his details are often confused, and he doesn't notice the right things. But Hawkeye is able to keep questioning him and eventually get the important details out of him. Uh, we learn, as I just said, that David was deemed insane by, um, by the Indians. Um, I think it was the Delaware in this case because he sings. Essentially what happened is Magua takes Alice and Cora, and along with David, were sent to the Delawares. Now, why are these two allied at this point in the novel? Cooper talks a lot about this break between the Huron and the Delaware. And so it's actually an important transition in Indian politics. And Cooper set up the fluidity of these alliances in the frontier. And here's the explanation we get. Um, the Sagamore is the high blood of the Delawares and is the great chief among their tortoises. That some of the stock are among the people who, to whom the singer tells us is plain by his words. And he, and had he but spent half his breath on prudent questions that he had blown away in making a trumpet of his throats, we might have known how many warriors are numbered. It is all over a dangerous path to move on for a friend whose face is turned from you often bears a bloodier mind than an enemy who seeks your scalp. Tis is a long and melancholy tradition, and one I have little like to think of, for it is not to be denied that the evil has been mainly done by men with white skins, but it has ended by turning the tomahawk of brother against brother and brought the Mingo and the Delaware to travel in the same path. End quote. So um, that's, you got a couple of things here. One is this, the, the Delaware may be a greater danger because they were once friends and now turned enemies, but then just how white match Ganations in the frontier, the, the war between the French and the British, the French abandonment of different groups when they weren't as useful anymore has brought two traditional allied enemies into an alliance and made the position of our characters much more devastating. And it's also ch- challenged our heroes even more because now they have to rescue two women in two different locations among two different tribes of people. So that complicates their rescue plans. So with the women split up, split up, they now need to come up with a plan to save both. And the plan they come up with is basically that David and Hayward, who will be dressed up as a fool, um, will, and eventually they, they, they pose as doctors instead of a fool, but the original plan is that they'll be dressed up as fools They'll go to Magua's camp. Chingachgook will stay with Monroe, while Hawkeye and Uncas go to treat with the Delawares. And they have a history together, so there's some hope that they'll be able to um, work it out. And it, it doesn't really work out well at this point, but there's some hope there. With this resolve, this plan resolved, the chapter ends with Hayward and David approaching the camp of Magua. Now, the real lesson here in this chapter is that the frontier is breaking down due to whites. 
The standard rules are breaking up, and this is symbolized by the alliance of the Delaware and the Huron. These are traditional enemies. They're not the kind of people you'd expect would find uh, uh, an alliance in any in the you know certainly not in the best of situations. But given this very bleak and brutal situation, they start to come together and find a common ground. All right, chapter twenty-three. Now, having arrived, the camp seems kind of empty, but the warriors do come after an alarm is raised. Hayward takes on the persona of a doctor rather than the fool, hoping that these skills might help them and might help them treat with them. Now, the Huron are angry, not so much at Hawkeye in those bunch, because their identity is not really clear to them. They're angry mostly at the French for abandoning them after the battle. And we, we see they got a good reason to. They, they did initiate this massacre, which embarrassed the French, and that was the root reason for that. But they're still angry at this shifting of the alliances. Uncas is brought in for he's been captured at some point, and it, I don't think it's ever really described by Cooper how he got f the full detail of it. It's certainly not narrated. It just comes to us in flashback. Um, we, we learn later on Hawkeye's story while this happened, but basically Uncas has been captured at some point, and he's brought to the Huron camp. And there's kind of a forced to kind of run a challenge. He wins this challenge with the help of Hayward and kind of earns a little bit of respect. And eventually there's a council to determine what to do with this captive. Now a young Huron is judged at this council and what happened is essentially Uncas is asked like, how did you get captured? And he says, well, this guy captured me, but he, you know, he did it because he was basically cowering in fear and he wasn't like fighting in the battle or something. He was basically acting as a coward. And this put him in a situation where he could capture Uncas. He didn't capture him through bravery, but rather through cowardice. And so rather than this giving him uh, credit in the community, it, it, it's scornful. In fact, this guy has been called out several times as a coward. So the father of this man must disown him and kill him uh, after being called out as a coward. And so with, done, with this done, this, this essentially murder of this young man done, this kind of leaves Hayward and Uncas alone in the lodge uh, together. And that's chapter 23. Chapter 24, they're kind of free to go at this point. They're not really under observation. It's something we saw in the Deerslayer a lot where captives kind of could come and go. There wasn't a lot of... Um, a lot of regulation of these people as they were in their camp. They're kind of there on the honor system, I guess, that they don't do anything too bad. And then from the perspective of the Huron, they are sort of doctors at this point. But Uncas is not, is sort of free to go, I think. I'm trying to remember the details. Now, Uncas later on ends up captured. So it's a, it, it, I'm a bit muddled on some of these details, but uh, I'll get to the main point is what matters here. They're searching the camp for Alice. And the chief comes to Hayward and asks her to save the life of a young woman who happens to be her daughter. And she's essentially gone insane and she's sick and there's something wrong with her. And the chief wants this doctor to save her. Now, this puts Hayward in a difficult predicament because he's posing as a doctor and he, you know, he has to actually do doctory things if he's going to hold up that facade. It's, if you've ever seen that movie from the 80s, Shaka Zulu, it was a miniseries from South Africa, but there the character, um, you know, presents themselves as doctors and then this gets taken by uh, the Zulus to be almost mystical and magical and when they can't save a life it becomes a, a problematic thing but they end up giving the character uh, the, the king like this hair dye which makes him feel he's getting younger 
And when they start running out of hair dye, they're worried, like, what's going to happen when we can't put up this facade anymore? So it's, it's a very similar concern here that Hayward has, that if he can't really save this woman's life, he'll be exposed as a fraud. So he has to kind of put his money where his mouth is. Now, Magua arrives and, in, and at some point insults the father of the coward who was just killed. And we get a really interesting moment here. Now, why is this so shameful? He, he killed his son for cowardice. Does this get him in the clear? Well, not entirely, because it has a little bit to do with heredity, heredity which is something that Cooper writes a lot about and thinks a lot about. And, you know, for Hawkeye, it's always presented as the gifts, the gifts of a people. It's a common theme in his stories. And the father then goes on this long speech where he denounces his son and, and basically says he never was my son at all. And it, it's, it's, a, it's a bit sad that he has to do that. Now, we get a nice contrast in, in these chapters, and that's like the, the Uncas and Magua. So although... This Magua identifies Uncas as who he is, and this surprises the Huron camp. He's known to the Huron as Lesef Agil. Um, and later on, Magua is also going to be able to identify Hawkeye as um, who he is. So before this, Uncas then gets condemned to death for his previous crime. So yeah, so that's what happens. So he was you know, just kind of captured and then let free because the person who captured him was deemed to be a coward. But when Magua identifies him as someone much more important, um, then he has to face, you know, penalty for all these previous crimes he did. So meanwhile, so as Uncas is kind of taken away and, and, and captured, Hayward is then taken by the chief to the place where the sick woman is. Now, while this happens, a, beast, a bear appears. A bear is kind of hovering around there. And there's this kind of an issue here somewhat about the domesticization of bears, which is something I never heard about. I didn't even think it was possible, but it's something Cooper alludes to at this point. Well, here's what Cooper writes. He says, Duncan, who knew that the animals often domesticated among the Indians, followed the example of his companions, believing that some favorite of the tribe had found its way into the thicket in search of food. Now, I don't know what they mean by domesticization. Uh, probably certainly not full domesticization of them, but maybe just tame them a little bit. That, I guess that's what it's referring to. But so this bear that's creeping around is there. Um, we're going to learn later on that that's basically Hawkeye in a disguise. So David uh, is is revealed to be with the sick woman. Um, Hayward meets them. And Hayward takes one look at her and realizes that she's doomed. And we're given this kind of these in this chapter and this in the previous chapter a theme of like the lost family line or the end of a line. Now we have different reasons for the end of some of these lines. In the one case, we have the line, the family of the coward, right? So this is the death of a family line due to basically a culture. The culture demanded it. It was like the burden of what was expected, you know, and how the younger generation didn't fit up to the cultural norms of the older generations and the expectations. So that line has to be eliminated. Then we have Uncas. Now he's that line's not over yet, but it's already been foreshadowed plenty in this in this novel. So it's, I don't. It's hardly a spoiler to to point out that Uncas doesn't make it to the end of the novel, and Chingachgook becomes the last of the Mohicans. But what's the reason for this? Well, obviously, although Cooper doesn't use this term, it's genocide. Right. Again and again, we're reminded that it's the Europeans, the white men who came in and disrupted the societies, caused war, caused devastation, 
eliminated whole generations of people. And so it's genocide that leads to the last of the Mohicans. And in many ways, these novels, as are many Cooper's novels, are really stories about this genocide of the Native Americans. Now, the Monroe line ends, and I guess this is a little bit... I mean, that's a that's a dying line, too, of course. Monroe has two daughters, and they'll one dies, the other will eventually marry. Someday Alice will probably marry and take on someone else's name. So that Monroe line is doomed. Now, that's just due to the patriarchy of names. It's, it's, it's not quite as... Uh, imp- doesn't quite read the epicness of, of The Last of the Mohicans, but that's another family line that's definitely doomed. All right, so I guess that takes us to the end of the chapter, and we can go to the, the final chapter we'll be looking at today is chapter 25. And so we get the realization that the bear, who's been hovering around our characters, is actually Hawkeye in a bear costume. And the bear scares away the Huron, and then they reveal that Alice is in the cavern, kind of hiding out there with these women and with the sick women. And we get at this point the story of how Hawkeye came by this costume. And it really has to do with this this conjurer who uses the bear costume to intimidate other people. It's part of his kind of magical experiences, I guess. And I'll read you this passage where he gives the story about how he came across this bear costume because it actually comes up later on in the plot and we'll talk about it a little bit more in the final episode on The Last of the Mohicans. Oh, so actually we, here's, we do get the story of how Uncas was uh, captured from Hawkeye's point of view. And then there's this fear that he's going to be doomed to die. And Hawkeye says, I had misgivings that such would be his fate. His bad fortune is the true reason for me being here, for I would never do it to abandon a boy, such a boy to the Hurons. A rare time of knaves would have added that they, that they tie the bounding elk and the long carabine, as they call me, to the same stake. Though why they had given me such a name, I never knew. There's little likeness between the gifts of killdeer and the performance of one of your natural Canada carbines, as there is between the nature of a pipestone and a flint. And then there's an interruption, and he goes on with the story. A conjurer must have his time like a straggling priest in the settlements. We are as safe as safe from interruption as a missionary would be at the beginning of the tour's discourse. While Uncas and I fell in with the return party of the Varleys, the lad was too much too forward for the scout, nay, for that matter, being of hot blood. He was not much to be blamed, and after all, one of the Huron proved a coward, and in fleeing, led him into an ambushment. And then it's explained that this is the coward that was earlier killed. And then Hawkeye goes on. After the loss of the boy, I turned upon the Hurons, as you may judge. There have been skirmishes between one or two of their outliers and myself, but that is neither here nor there. So after I had shot the imps, I got in pretty nigh to the lodges without further commotion. Then what should I, what should luck do in my favor, but lead me to the very spot where one of the most famous conjurers of the tribe was dressing himself. As I well knew, for some great battle with Satan. Though why should I call that luck, which it now seems was an especial ordering of providence? So a judgmental rap over the head stiffened the lying imposter for a time, and leaving him a bit of walnut for a supper to prepare any uproar, and stringing him between two saplings, I made free with his finery and took on the part of a bear myself. So that's the story of how he gets this bear costume. Now, the, the interesting thing is, of course, this idea that he was going into some battle with Satan. I don't know if he's just in projecting you know hawkeye would know most likely you'd think the cultural ramifications of dressing up as a bear yet 
the idea that Satan is in this culture? I mean, maybe, maybe there's some mixing of religions here. Um, so through, for the rest of the novel, the bear costume, you know, sometimes can be taken as a bear, but more often it's taken as the conjurer. I mean, the people aren't that stupid. So it's just this belief that the conjurer is dressing up as the bear for various um, functions. So we get that story. Uh, and I just think it's kind of fascinating that there's this religion that involved dressing up as bear and doing battle with demons. Now, Magua attacks him. The bear costume doesn't frighten him. He sees through it. I think he realizes that it's Hawkeye and they have a fight. Eventually, they subdue and gag Magua and kind of tie him up and then make an excuse for why the relatives of the sick women can't enter the cave. So they leave the cave and basically lock it up. And I think they lock the conjurer up there, too, uh, who Hawkeye brought. They lock up Magua. The sick woman is in there dying. And they just kind of say, you can't go in there. And they, they kind of hide it from the from other people who are traveling through. He sends Alice and Hayward, or Hawkeye sends Alice and Hayward to the Delaware, where they'll be safe, he believes. But he stays behind to rescue Uncas. So once again, he's staying behind to rescue Uncas. This isn't the first time um, in the novel. Actually, he just told the story with Bear how he was going back to rescue Uncas. Um, and he gives a lecture to the group about his nature and his duty which is why he has to go back and, and do this. And I'll leave you more or less with, with that um, section. The question essentially is, why should a white man then risk his life for an Indian? And basically it comes down to him for friendship. Quote, you have risked my life, you have risked life and all that is dear to you to bring off this gentle one. And I suppose that some such disposition is at the bottom of it all. As for me, I taught the lad the real character of a rifle, and well, he has paid me for it. I have fought to decide in many bloody skirmishes, and so long as I could hear the crack of his piece in one ear and that of the sacamore in the other, I knew no enemy was on my back. Winters and summers, nights and days, have we roved the wilderness in company, eating of the same dish, one sleeping while the other watched. And afore it shall be said that Uncas was taken to the torment and I at hand, but there is a single ruler to us all, whether may be the color of the skin and him I call to witness that before the Mohican boy shall perish for want of a friend good faith shall depart the earth and kill deer become as harmless as the tootin weapon of the singer end quote um, so it, it's ultimately about a friendship and a higher duty a higher morality um, whether that's this Christian morality uh, I guess is something we could open up to interpretation. Cooper certainly was a Christian, and he spends a lot of time in his works making this distinction uh, between these different religions on earth, but somehow he has this idea that there is a greater truth behind it all, which probably is, in his view, the Christian truth. But, you know, like, as in, if you remember back in Deerslayer, he talked a lot about how Chingachgook and Deerslayer would have the, sa have the same afterlife at some point. Um, so that does it. We, we've actually wrapped up most of the plot lines the only thing we have to reveal is really how do they get Korra and Uncas out of this out of this captivity and we'll explore that when we look at the final quarter of of the last of the Mohicans so um, please uh, let me know what you think about this story if you've read it if you've seen the movie if you have any contrasts that you think are interesting uh, do you think some of this more bizarre uh, costuming that goes on in the second half of the novel could have been translated to film in an effective way is that something you like to see in another future uh, adaptation of this of this story 
do you think we're losing something by not having that? Uh, that's certainly like one of the stronger themes in the second half of the novel is reality and image and disguise and the true nature underneath the disguises we put on. So I think it's all very interesting, but what do you think about all of this? Please leave your comments below or you can write me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. But if not, keep reading. Um, keep, I hope you keep enjoying the leather socking tales if you're reading along with me. Um, but if not, you go, you know, you're still welcome to join me next time when we look at the final 100 pages of The Last of the Mohicans. Thank you so much for listening. Let Christian men take heart today, the devil's rule is done. Let no man heed the devil more, for Jesus Christ has come. But hear ye all what angels sing, how Mary made for Jesus King.